grace to you, saints of God, a grace of God. Amen. That short blessing I give at the beginning of each sermon, that's another little tradition. Not something I have to do, but the way I was taught preaching, the preaching that I grew up hearing, it's something I do. It's usually different Sunday to Sunday, but it tends to follow the same formula, if you notice that. I say something like grace or peace or grace and peace to you, saints of God, or to you whom God has chosen, or to you who know and love our Savior. Whatever I say in that blessing is going to somewhat reflect the theme of my message. It's a prayer, really. I'm asking that God bless you, that he give you peace, that he work knowledge of his grace in you. And then I follow that up with a reminder of what he has done for you and who you are because of that. It's the part of the sermon I really least expect you to think about afterwards, but it's something that sets up the message I'll share with you. So here's that blessing again. Grace to you, saints of God, a grace of God. Amen. I'm not wearing my robe today. That's another traditional part of our worship here. The pastor generally wears a white robe. If you've been at Grace of God for a while, you probably remember that the pastors actually used to wear black robes. That change took place probably sometime in the 90s. Would that be right? People have a lot of fun coming up with explanations for those robes that preachers wear. I've heard people say that the white robe is a symbol of the imputed righteousness of Jesus that covers the believer, Jesus' perfection, covering over all our sin. I've heard the idea that the black robe was supposed to cover up the preacher, keep you from focusing on his flashy tie or whatever it was, let you think about his message instead because the idea was there. The important thing isn't the man, but, but the word that he's bringing you. Neither of those things are really true. Even though we at Grace of God might think of that black robe as the older, really more traditional robe, the white robe is historically actually older. The white robe is what Christian pastors have worn for close to 2,000 years, roughly since the Roman Empire. It's really just a stylized version of what would have been street clothes at that time. And as the style shifted to different everyday clothes, the white robe was kept as a uniform of the pastor's office. The black robe, too, never really had any special theological meaning. It's the traditional robe that university professors would wear, and it became customary for preachers to wear this robe as a sign that they were educated, that they knew what they were talking about. That's why this general robe style is also worn for graduations. That robe is only a few hundred years old. So when we changed to the white robe in the 90s, that change actually brought us back in line with what was more historic, more traditional for the Christian church as a whole. And now you see this change, a lot of churches, preachers who simply wear what I'm wearing today to lead worship, right? Maybe even more casual than that. That change is really bringing them back into what the white robe originally was, simply wearing street clothes. When the Christian church started, they wore those white robes because that was streetwear. There was no particular uniform, no special garment for Christian pastors in the beginning of the church. Let me read to you something which I said in my message last week. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us to come here on Sunday or Saturday or every other Tuesday. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need me to wear the robe I'm wearing. He doesn't need our church decorated any particular way. He invites us here to worship together to make sure that one particular thing happens, that you hear the words, you are forgiven. 
That is the greatest gift which the God who has everything can give, and you're here just to receive it, free of charge. So, given that, what is the point of church traditions? The central point of our gathering in worship is to receive God's gift of forgiveness. What does wearing a robe have to do with that? Why sing hymns? Why have three Bible readings? Why have a sermon? Why stand? Why sit? Why all of it? We use tradition as a teaching tool. That's why I've spent time this morning talking about all the various parts of our worship service. All of the things we do are meant to teach us something, to remind us of some truth. And something I think we may want to do more often is have a worship service or a Bible study where we do exactly what I've been doing today. Explain what's going on. Because God willing, as we move forward with our mission restart, we'll have more and more new people worshiping with us who will want to know, why are we doing what we're doing? This is going to be a shorter message today because I'm talking in a lot of other places in the service, so let's actually get to my sermon text. That's our gospel reading, Matthew 7. The Pharisees put Jesus and his disciples on blast. They publicly excoriate him for failing to comply with the traditions which had been passed down to them from their elders. To be very clear, what they are talking about is not anything that actually came from God given in the Bible. These are rules which the rabbis, the Jewish theologians and teachers, had developed to build a hedge around the actual ceremonial laws that God had instituted for his people. There were a few rules for the priests about ceremonial washing, but there was no law God had set forth for his people at large about washing their hands before eating. So Jesus turns right around and throws this attack back in their faces. Verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Is Jesus being too harsh? Sure, we can see that their rules aren't necessarily biblical, but to say that they've completely left aside God's law in favor of their own traditions. But Jesus has an example of this ready for them. Jesus points out that, according to the traditions of the rabbis, a person could declare some property to be korban, literally a dedicated gift. The implication is that this gift is dedicated to God. And somehow, that vow was sometimes used by children to avoid supporting their parents. It's not totally clear exactly how this worked, but one possibility is that these adult children would declare their intention for their money to be, at a future date, korban. And because that dedicated gift was going to be given in the future, they could keep that money for now and use it as they wanted, maybe invest it. What they couldn't do with it was support their parents. Sorry, mom and dad. Korban. And Jesus says the rabbis concurred with this. You say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. He says that they nullify the word of God because under these circumstances which they allowed, those children, those adult children, are violating the fourth commandment. I could preach a really self-righteous sermon on this text as the restart pastor today. I could really just blast from the pulpit about how wanting any traditions from the past, 
any link to what's come before is foolish, is nonsense, and honestly is downright sinful. If I were feeling really bold, I might even say that wanting our church to be traditional is nullifying the word of God because we're not loving newcomers. I could say things that imply that caring about grace of God's history makes you no better than those Pharisees. You all would know I was wrong. You all know your Bibles, your doctrine, better than that. If I tried to get up here this morning and do that, I'd be doing exactly what the Pharisees themselves were doing. Setting out my own laws, my own teachings about the only right and proper way to do things. The only way that truly honors God. Now, when we talk about how we're going to look and function and serve as a church, we're not really talking about right or wrong, about sin or obedience. We're just using wisdom. There are certain things that we are going to do. We will teach and preach law and gospel, gathering around the word. We will baptize. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper. We will bear one another's burdens. These things mark the Christian church. Apart from that, it really is up to us to do what we want. We'll keep some principles in mind, good order, dignity, clarity. Traditions will stay, not because we have to do church any particular way, but because they help us teach. As Moses said to the Israelites in our Old Testament reading, be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Tradition is a powerful teaching tool for us for our kids, for newcomers. Why do we do what we do? Anything we do here. We do because it helps us share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do it to remind ourselves of what Christ has done. We do it to proclaim that truth to others. And those are good reasons to have traditions. Amen.